from 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, welcome to The Art of the Matter, made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you. I'm Sharon Gamble. Welcome to an all-new format for The Art of the Matter. On today's show, you'll hear new voices and new ideas. Jolene Ketzenberger's Eat, Drink, Indiana Radio, Five Things by one of Kyle Long's A Cultural Manifesto guests, and much more. But don't worry, you'll still get the chance to say, What'll we do with us? All that and more right after the latest news from NPR. Welcome back to The Art of the Matter from WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble. Today, we're going to take a trip to a world called Winslow Nation. Don't look on a map because you're going to need author, illustrator, composer Devin Kondaki's help to find this magical land. Why don't you start by reading just a short passage from the book? Sure. There's a setup of Winslow and Grimble Crumble, and Grimble Crumble just ate a magical bubble fruit, and he goes, Oh, no! How am I going to get my skin color to stop glowing, pleaded Grimble Crumble. Why don't we go ask my brother Doug at the Nomtonia Library, suggested Winslow. I'm sure he will have an idea to help you. (laughs) So how did you become an author and illustrator? You mentioned before I turned the microphone on, you you came from South Florida to go to Hanover College. Mm -hmm. Did you know that was going to be your career path? Um, Going to Hanover, I did. I did. I said I wanted to do picture books, and I wanted to do it as a multimedia thing. Um, I didn't know all the, the nuts and bolts of how to get here. That's why I kind of went to Hanover. But I I knew that I wanted to do picture books for kids, and I wanted to be about Winslow. Why? I looked around at the market, and I looked around at the people in my life. I was young. I mean, I was only 16, 17, 18. And uh, I felt I had something to say about the times we're in, and I thought, this generation could use content that taught them values because um, mm. I thought values were something that were was lacking and not values like beating them over the head with values but uh, values that uh, were relevant to all societies today because where I grew up in South Florida is very diverse I mean we have South America down there <laughs> I was sure. the minority <laughs> yeah yeah and so I grew up with so many cultures and what's cool about Indianapolis is too it's very diverse here too um, so I wanted to get that message out. Um, and I got there somehow <laughs> in a cool, very cool way that kids like. So, You talked about multimedia. Define what the, the multi-parts of that sure. are. So uh, growing up in the 90s as a kid, I was on multiple different devices. Okay, at the time, we didn't have iPhones. It was all in one. We had you know Game Boys. We had PS and PlayStation 2s. We had computer. We had music. We had all these different things. And so I, I think kids today is, uh, grow up with multimedia platforms. I mean, they're on all different things. And today it's kind of all in one at some point, but that's how I grew up. So I wanted it to go beyond books. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I created an online interactive experience that's different from the books, a different experience from the books, but that's connected, and also an interactive iPad app that's also a different experience on the book and music that I originally made. So I wanted to do it that way because I think that's what how kids today think multimedia. If you were talking to some parents or some teachers and and you wanted to guide a kid into this universe, a kid, a child, into this universe, um, would you want them to start with the book or would you want them to start online or does it make any difference what the entry Um, point is? I don't think it does make a difference what the entry point is because each one's a different experience. I'd I'd like them to pick up the book. I I want kids to read, obviously. And by book, I should mention this is an actual three-dimensional Hold it up to the microphone and tap it so that sure. they can. It's actual paper. <laughs> yeah, it's a picture book hardcover. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And even with that, there's different. Uh, even with the picture books, there's different levels that this that I'm in the series. There's going to be um, many books, a total of twenty one actually. And uh, and you've outlined all of them. You know, yeah. where, you know your your journey. Yeah. So what's interesting is the way I think. I've actually just recently realized this. I think big, and then I come in. I reel myself back in to focus on one thing. So I built the whole world, and I've got all the characters, and I've got all the values I want to talk about. And now I'm just focusing in on the one book at a time now, mm-hmm. and 
utilizing that. So by the end of the whole experience, uh, you've explored all of Winslow Nation. Um, you've learned about 21 different values that I think are relevant to unite all peoples from all different cultures and backgrounds. Wow. And you've also learned, uh, I studied political science at Hanover. Mm -hmm. You also learned civics. So uh, different characters in Winslow Nation are, are members of the cabinet because Winslow is president. And so you've learned about different departments. So in the art exhibition that I have now, you can see the different seals and online. Uh, you've learned different levels of government. And again, it's just uh, civics. It's just plain civics. Sure. Not Don't tell your children this, by the way. Let them discover it through the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not any, by any means political. It's just civics. Yeah. And that was something else I thought was lacking in children's literature. And yeah. I wanted to fill that void. So. Tell us about the art exhibition. Sure. So my art exhibition, uh, it's my first one. It's called Welcome to Winslow Nation. Mm -hmm. And it kind of operates similarly to the website where there's a whole, except for the fact that it shows the process of how I created the picture books also. Mm -hmm. um, so you walk in and there's a giant Winslow Nation map. And you can see on the wall, you see these black and white drawings, these color drawings, and then you see these backgrounds that I handmade, and then the giant map. And you see the process of how many layers go into an image on a page in a picture book. And so it shows the, the map of Winslow Nation, and it also shows the process that goes into a page. So I've got m multiples of those. And the, the cool thing about the art exhibition is just like the book series, as, it, as the book series grows you've got the art exhibition growing too because there'll be new art and it showcases new locations in Winslow Nation. And so I'm, I'm very excited. We just put that up the other day in Madison, but I know it's going to be up here in March. So. Sweet. It strikes me that with words like Winslow and Wawa Fruit, you've done some research about, or maybe you haven't, maybe you just <laughs> have a good memory of yourself as a child, but um, of what sounds kids can latch on to and, and pronounce easily. How do, how do you test your work? Sure. Well, <laughs> I have done a lot of research on uh, a lot of uh, sight words, uh, phonetics, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I test my work um, by just trying it out, getting in front of people. I do have other books I've read in front of kids that aren't uh, out there yet. But I think the best way is to get it in front of kids and learn, um, get their feedback. Because kids will tell you straight up what they <laughs> like and what they don't like. Um, They're honest that way. They haven't developed those filters. Yes. Um, and I think just getting it in front of people and with before you go to print. So sometimes I do have stories that I'll go out when I'm doing a classroom visit and I'll read those also. I know my I've done that a lot. So. What's the biggest change a child ever suggested to you? Well, there's, I get a lot of suggestions. Not bad. <laughs> a lot of crazy suggestions. Well, I was having lunch with kids yesterday, and they were making a lot of suggestions at Fall Creek. It was classic. Maybe uh, I get this letters from this uh, kid. He keeps sending me letters, and I send him back official, you know, letter back from Winslow Nation Consulate. Aww, awesome. And uh, he, he said there was a whole alien race of gnomes now and all this stuff. And it's usually just storylines and stuff like that. It's not necessarily changes in my book, but just news stories. And Anything you've incorporated? Uh, I've incorporated names before, yeah. Kids will be like, you should make one name this. So I'm like, oh, maybe. <laughs> I have. I've done that in the past, yeah. After you conquer the world with these 21 books, what's next? Uh, <laughs> I focus on one thing at a time. <laughs> but uh, I do have interest in doing an anime unrelated to Winslow Nation. Uh -huh. um, uh, with Winslow Nation, I'd like to do the books. I'd like to do a TV series that I've got planned out. I've kind of got a pilot kind of in the early stages I'd like to have a song with every book, and I'd also like I'd like to tour also mm -hmm. nationally with the music also. Um, but after Winslow, um, I've got an idea for a project that I want to do, and I'd like to do it in Japan with as an animated film. But that's all I'm going to say about that for now because Winslow is the focus, and that's what I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm, it's going to be a focus for a few years. Devin Kondaki. Find out more about the world of Winslow Nation and its book and online communities at winslownation.com slash about. And Winslow is W-I-N-Z-L-O-W-N. So winslownation.com slash about. You're listening to The Art of the Matter on WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble. Later this hour, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. But first, it's time for Eat, Drink, Indiana Radio with Jolene Ketzenberger. This week, Jolene talks with artisan breadmaker Haley McGinty. 
Hi, I'm Jolene Ketzenberger, host of Eat Drink Indie, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. on HD to the Point and online anytime at WFYI.org. Haley McGinley just wanted a good hearty loaf of locally made gluten-free bread. And when she couldn't find it, she decided to learn how to do it herself. And this past summer, she launched Native Bread. I stopped in at the downtown commercial kitchen when she was busy baking recently to talk about how she took her bread business from idea to reality. When you first had the idea, how did you take it from a passing idea into a, a real business where you're we're in a commercial kitchen, you're selling to restaurants, so how does that happen? Oh, God. It's... <laughs> I don't even know. It's like my dreams are just answered every day. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think for, I'm a big believer in the law of attraction and I put it out there. I had, you know, I had this vision and this idea and I told it to my friends and I told it to my family and everybody was super supportive and I just was like, okay, well, what's step one? What do I have to do first? So the first thing is I need to start baking. Right, so I go to my favorite grocery store, Good Earth and Broad Ripple, and I start, you know, I buy the ingredients, and then I start testing recipes and um, letting my friends taste test, and so just starting really small and focusing on what can I do right now, what needs to happen right now, and then just moving from there. So when did you launch it? When did you put it out there like that? Recently, very recently. Was it a little, a little scary to be out there? all of a sudden? I don't know if scary is the right word. More of, it's just kind of cool. I'm like, this is really neat. I, I, I'm really just excited that I'm creating something that other people like. And I, you know, when I had this vision, I, I really just wanted to make good quality bread and I'm doing that and everyone loves it. So it's so awesome. So tell me, um, what products you have now and where you see the product line going. So right now we have a seeded whole grain boule, a honey oat loaf, and a sourdough loaf. And each loaf is hand formed by me. <laughs> and so going, you know, moving forward, I love, like I said, I have a sweet tooth. So I definitely want to do a cinnamon raisin loaf, cinnamon buns, scones, pretzels. I've thought about doing English muffins and bagels and pizza dough. I want to make an awesome pizza crust. So when I go to restaurants and, you know, pizzerias, I can order pizza and again, feel good about it and not have to worry about waking up the next day with achy joints and a swollen face because of the inflammation from gluten. So now tell me a little bit about the ingredients that you're, you're using and the ones you're trying to avoid, you know, to, to boost that nutritional value. Sure. I use all whole grains. I don't use any white rice flour. I don't use cornstarch. So all the breads are corn-free as well. Um, so I use the maximum amount of whole grains as I can and the minimal amount, the minimum amount of starches to still create a product that resembles and feels and tastes like bread. And the main grains I'm using are sorghum, uh, brown rice flour, millet, teff, oat flour, the seeded whole grain boule, I use sunflower seeds, flax seeds, sesame seeds, and poppy seeds. And um, I'm sourcing ingredients locally, so the honey oat loaf, um, using local honey for that. So local honey and um, also getting organic ingredients whenever they're available. So sometimes things, you just can't get them organically, unfortunately, but whenever an organic option is there, then that's what we use. And I also want to say, too, while I'm thinking of it on the healthy point of the breads, I don't use any sugar either. So there's no processed sugar. Um, I don't even use cane sugar. And maybe moving forward when I do, like, a cinnamon bun, I'm looking at just using coconut sugar. So that's much um, – has a lower glycemic – you know, it doesn't affect your glycemic level as much as, like, cane sugar would. So um, being conscious of that as well. Has it been challenging – trying to do that to you know use um those sorts of nutrient dense ingredients and still get a tasty satisfying loaf of bread actually no i don't think so and so far the response hasn't shown that either i think the whole grains they're very flavorful and when you combine them you know there, there's each of my breads there's a blend of different grains so it's not all just one and you can't do that with gluten-free baking anyways. You have to blend things together. And 
you know, and then I use uh, sea salt and just a little bit of sea salt and it just makes the flavor pop. And I just love gluten-free grains because they all have a different flavor profile and combining them together just makes such excellent bread. <laughs> that was Haley McGinley of Native Bread. For more information and to find Haley's gluten-free artisan bread, go to nativebread.com or look for it on Facebook. For Eat Drink Indie, I'm Jolene Ketzenberger. Jolene Ketzenberger with artisan breadmaker Haley McGinty. You can hear Jolene's Eat Drink Indiana Radio Saturday mornings at 11 on WFYI 90.1 HD2, The Point. Over the years, central Indiana has been home to at least five companies that have produced the works of Shakespeare. The newest initiative, begun in 2015, brings together three Indiana-based theater companies performing a trio of Shakespeare plays in repertory in an intimate setting. This year, Casey Ross, artistic director of both Bardfest and Catalyst Repertory, will be staging the lesser-known Shakespeare drama Coriolanus. Meanwhile, Garfield Shakespeare Company takes on the epic King Lear, and First Folio Productions stages the comedy Twelfth Night. Casey talked about Coriolanus, Bardfest, and Shakespeare plays and their audiences with IBJ Arts and Entertainment editor Lou Harry. Three kingdoms coming together. Sounds kind of a Shakespearean (laughs) uh, plot, but in terms of Bardfest, this is something kind of rare in central Indiana. Three different arts groups coming together to create a festival. Yes, um, we just thought it was kind of strange that an art community as large as Indianapolis didn't have its own Shakespeare festival. Um, But there's so many great companies locally that do focus on Shakespeare or at least try to have an element of classical adaptation. So about last year, uh, Glenn Dobbs from First Folio approached uh, my company, which at the time was CRP Casey Ross Productions, but we switched names to Catalyst Repertory. Um, And then we also approached uh, Garfield Shakespeare Company and... The three of us picked three unique Shakespeare shows and found a venue where we could all share one black box. <laughs> so the plays are very rarely anywhere in the world is there a full text production of any Shakespeare play except maybe a Macbeth or a Julius Caesar. You might find one. Uh, what's the starting point of saying, okay, what stays, what goes? Coriolanus is really long. It was deceptively long because it was a very quick read because it's so action-packed. But because it's so dense, it, it runs a good over three hours. Okay. Um, so my, my starting point was to kind of take out a little bit of the political jargon that might be so dated that really no one's going to follow it and, and stuff that's not really adding to the action or the characterization of the show. Can you give a, a capsule of what Coriolanus is about? It's a different kind of Shakespeare play in my limited experience with it because it's not heavy on on uh, monologues and soliloquies, yeah. and this guy's pretty <laughs> terse. Yeah, he's he's direct. Yes. <laughs> uh, Coriolanus is a young Roman general who comes back from the wars with much success and begins a political career, and it's in the time of a very war-struggled uh, existence, and so the poor people are asking for grain at their own rates, which the rich and the military are not willing to grant them because they feel... We've died to have Mm. this limited resource. You've done nothing. Mm. So it's a land of riots and kind of timely appropriate Mm -hmm. right now. Oh, a political play in October? Mm. Oh, I know. (laughs) But the idea of a general who at least is, it seems, very well equipped for military service, believing that those traits can be adapted to the political world, (laughs) seems to be at the center of it. Is that... Yes. My perception of yeah, that Yeah, because he's, he's just, he's not suited for public office. He's not a kind man. He's not a sympathetic man. Mm-hmm. He's not even particularly an intelligent man. <laughs> he's he's kind of a, a bloodthirsty war hero. Right. So Trying for, to be a politician. Yeah. The um, There are also a few other additional pieces of programming as part of the festival, correct? Yes, we, uh, we try to have uh, guest showcase shows, and this year we have uh, two by an actor named Timothy Mooney, who might be known from our friend. She does a show called Breakneck Hamlet. That's which, the lightning fast Hamlet <laughs> in 50 minutes. Correct? We thought that was pretty appropriate for a Shakespeare festival. And then he also does another piece called Lot O Shakespeare, where you spin a game show wheel and he has to do a monologue from every single Shakespeare play in an hour. Last year, three productions, 
in rap this year, again, reminding it's Coriolanus, Twelfth Night, and, and King, King Lear. Lear. Um, do you find, it, are people buying into coming up to see all three? Do each have their own audience? I, I tend to find that it's the shows that, that draw mm. in people. Like last year, As You Like It was a smashing success because it was a fun romantic comedy. And for the folks who want more of that, there's Twelfth Night yep. this year. Yes. And then you have the epic King Lear. <laughs> And and the un, for those who want something unfamiliar, perhaps Coriolanus. They get Coriolanus. Unfamiliar and political. And you're in. Describe the space that you're in, because you, a lot of people may not know what you mean by a black box. You're in a small theater. <laughs> it's a little theater. It seats about seventy five. Um, if we're really packing them in, and um, it's the Carmel Theater Company stage at Studio Fifteen. It's a little space, but... Don't be afraid of that. It's yeah. a comfortable space. It's oh, yeah. a chance to get up close and you don't have to worry about... I think it forces a little creativity, yes. too, because I've definitely had to think about how I'm going to stage a war <laughs> and, in a uh, 15-foot theater. <laughs> what is your formula for blood packs? Uh, we're doing a little bit of everything because um, I've, I've modernized it a little bit. It's not going to be big rapier fights. Um, they're switchblades and knife fights, and some of my soldiers fight with brass knuckles, so... Oh. I have a, a blood wrangler backstage who's volunteering <laughs> for us, and we're just going to have a bucket of corn syrup and some baggies. So somebody gets going blood, get messy. <laughs> blood wrangler on their resume. Yeah. I hope she's happy with it. <laughs> IBJ Arts and Entertainment Editor Lou Harry with Bardfest Artistic Director Casey Ross. Her production of Coriolanus will be one of three plays featured at Bardfest October 13th through the 30th at Studio 15 in Carmel. You can find out more about Bardfest at Bardfest Indy on Facebook. According to the lyrics of Purple Rain, Prince never wanted to be just a weekend lover. But Hilbert Circle Theater will be filled with the late icon's music for two short flings as the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra performs the music of Prince on Friday, October 14th, and again on Tuesday, November 22nd. Contributor Ben Shine talked to conductor, arranger, and founder of Windboard Music, Brent Havens. The conductor will lead the ISO, playing the music of Prince with a rock and roll band, including vocals, lights, and a full stage production. The performance will also feature one of Prince's own actual guitars. So, Brent, your group, Windborn Music, teams up with orchestras around the world to put on big productions of music from some of rock and roll's biggest names. How does the collaboration and planning work? Oh, I mean, we, we, the, the fact that we've been doing this for so long, we've been doing this, it's our 21st year, which is pretty astounding. It's hard to believe that we've been doing this for so long, but it's still exciting and we're still growing and orchestras are finding us. It really is, it's, it's a matter of them getting a hold of us and us getting a hold of them and figuring out what the dates are that they're looking at and what shows they want to put in since we've got 14 shows now, so... And we've been to Indianapolis a bunch. We've probably done nine or ten shows with uh, with the Indianapolis Symphony. You know, my production crew gets with their production crew. Um, our music librarians get with their music librarians and make sure the music is is sent out to them. And their members get to you know have a chance to look at it before we we actually get there. Um, although it's not something super difficult for them, it you know it can be a fun thing for everybody all along. You know, from the orchestra to the band when when we come in, and and obviously to the audience. So yeah, well, you've worked with our symphony a whole bunch of times, but just recently uh, for a David Bowie performance. What was that yes. like, and what are you excited about for this round? Well, obviously this round it's uh, the music of Prince, but our, our David Bowie show we were out at the uh, Connor Prairie out there, and and it's always such a great time out there having all those people uh, as long as it's not raining but uh, <laughs> it's it's always a blast being out there and uh, the audience just has such a great time and um and we've we've done some some of the shows in the hall too um our pink floyd show was sold out there and the audience just they just have such a great time because there's there's so much that's there that all these fans get a chance to hear and uh, experience in a whole new way. So that that's just a great thing. Well, on that note, why did you choose Prince for this production? 
Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, you had mentioned Bowie. Um, Bowie had passed away in January, and uh, we had been looking at Bowie since uh, June of last year. Uh, you know, I like to do research before we do any, you know, present any shows to make sure that the you know music's going to fit with the orchestra, that there's enough for a two-hour show. You know, U.S. sales are decent uh, for that artist. And and then when when Bowie passed away. Uh, we had orchestras calling us saying, hey, um, you know, we think our audience would really like this. And we had already been looking at it, so I really moved that to the front of the heap. And then almost the identical thing happened when Prince passed away just a couple of months later. You know, I I know some of the some of the Prince catalog, but not, I wasn't a huge fan of growing up, but throughout the years, you're not going to go to a mall or a grocery store without hearing Prince somewhere or David Bowie or Led Zeppelin, you know, all the shows that we do. So it's just exciting to be able to really dig into this music now since we're doing this show, you know, 17 or 18 songs that we've picked that um, are going to be really taken to a different different place. Um, well, that's what I was going to ask you. So Prince had something like 80 albums worth of music. How did you pick the songs to perform for this performance? Oh, that is, you know, invariably, it doesn't matter what show we do, <laughs> invariably I get this question. I mean, is uh, it a yeah. mix of popularity versus musicality? I mean, what, what really yeah. determines well, what songs well, you pick? No matter what we play on uh, on the set list, invariably somebody's going to come up to me afterward and say, "Hey, Brent, uh, what's uh, why did you do this tune or why didn't you do that tune?" But you have artists as prolific as Prince or or Bowie or Zeppelin or, or Queen, you're going to miss somebody's favorite somewhere along the line. They've got ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen albums of of material and trying to trying to determine, okay, which one of these. 235 tunes are we going to do? We're only going to do 17 of them, maybe 18 of them. So that's always the hardest part. And some of it is, you know, I certainly want to look and hit the, some of the biggest hits because, you know, people love them and they're hits because they were terrific pieces. You know, I, I also try and like to dig in and, and find something that, uh, you know, people don't, uh, may not know. But at the same time... <laughs> I've got to I've got to make sure I get as many hits as I can get in there. So it's a, it's a combination of what the popularity is and do I think I can make this work musically and and all of that. It's a combination of all of that. Brent, this is a really non-traditional classical concert. What would you like the audience to take with them? Well, I'd love for them to to walk out of there saying, "Wow, that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen." It would be great that if they got to hear what they really wanted to hear, the tunes that they wanted to hear, and then you know, just present it in an entirely different way than what they're used to. Even though the real main meat of the show, or the meat of the music, I mean, is is in there, and they they said, "Oh, I heard what I normally would hear on the record, but now I've." There was this extra color, this extra this sound that we're not used to that sounded so great with it. That's what I'd love to have happen. Well, Brent, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to the concerts on the 14th and the 22nd. Thanks, Ben. Contributor Ben Shine with Brent Havens. You can hear the ISO interpret the music of Prince on Friday, October 14th, and again on Tuesday, November 22nd. Indianapolis jazz bassist Brandon Meeks is a prolific collaborator, but WFYI's Jill Dittmeyer is here to tell us about his first solo album. I found this really hard to believe, Sharon, when I interviewed Brandon, too, because he does. He works with so many people. I just assumed that he had probably already released his own CD LP as well, but he but he had not. I mean, he he teaches, he performs with local national jazz music, musicians. He's he's even been in the movie, the the biopic about Miles Davis. Maybe he just hasn't had time to sit down and do his own solo album till now. Well, it, it's kind of been a process, as he explained to me. And he decided that he he turns thirty six years old on October the eighth. So he thought happy that birthday. was happy birthday. That was the perfect day to drop his new birth, so to speak. It's his new record. It's called Red, Black, Green. Just over the years, I've kind of really been wrestling with this uh, this thing that I call. Uh, 
a push toward exceptional conformity. And, and, and to me, that's where uh, just from childhood, you're uh, kind of just funneled into the system where you have to conform and kind of be like everybody else and just kind of keep your head down and just try to just try to make your way by just fitting in and, and getting a job and doing all those things. The concept is about liberation, and this is about my personal liberation into being an artist. Uh, I've been fortunate to, to uh, be able to be around a lot of great musicians here in the city and uh, do a lot of great work with a lot of great musicians. So when you, so when you uh, have the ability to do that, uh, you're always playing with somebody else or uh, working on music that's going to be on somebody else's project. And, uh, and that's very fun to do. That, that, that experience is necessary, but you get to a point where you have to, have to try to do something on your own. So, you know, I've, I've gotten to, to that point finally. <laughs> so this is my first uh, album as a solo artist. I have a, a three-piece hip-hop band that I've been working really hard on for the past five, maybe five or six years called Native Son. So, we, um, so we're really getting that off the ground. Like we were in Denver, Colorado last week. We've been in Ohio uh, recently. So we, we're really starting to, to move that band around. Uh, I play with Rob Dixon, who we call, uh, affectionately called the musical mayor of Indianapolis. Like we play every Monday at the Chatterbox. So, you know, he's uh, getting ready to go into the studio. So we're all gearing up and, and getting tunes together for that. And then um, just a lot of different freelance work. I do a lot of session work for people all over the world. So, you know, it, it you know, it's, it's, it's a great time just working, you know, meeting different people, working with different people and just just trying, trying different things constantly. <laughs> I kind of see myself as uh, somebody that's that's for the people. Like, I, I really want to see anybody that's in my circle of influence. Like, I, I want to do things to kind of help that person be inspired or succeed. Or maybe they, maybe if I'm doing something right, they can see what I'm doing and say, hey, hey how'd you do that? Now I'll, I'll just tell you, you know. So I, I, I always want to uh, just be some kind of positive light in everything I do. I'm always working on music. Like it's it's like there's a radio on my head. It's it's playing all the time and I'm like constantly trying to catch things that are playing on this radio and capture them. So there's like I mean there's there's, there's a, like tons of tracks that are like just on my computer right now that are, that are going to be on some project in the future. So And, you know, Brandon is such a positive inspiration and such a huge supporter of local music. And he, he wants to encourage other people to, to not be afraid of their creative streak, too, Sharon. This was very important to him. He and his wife, they have three young children. And he said, you know, they're all they're kind of musically inclined. And instead of kind of holding that back, he, he wants them to explore that and take it wherever they would like to take it as well. And even if they don't follow in his footsteps and become professional musicians, their lives will be richer for it. Exactly. To not be afraid of that creative thing. And if you have to get off the normal path, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, wait, are we just reassuring ourselves here? <laughs> I, uh, hopefully for everyone, huh? <laughs> uh, you can find uh, the new LP, Red, Black, Green, on Bandcamp and also on Brandon's website. It's brandonmeeksmusic.com. Fantastic. And you know what? There are so many other fabulous arts events going on in uh, the next week or so. A lot of a musical and a lot of other things as well. So I think it might be time for that calendar that we call. What do we, we do? What do you have? What's going on this week? On uh, Saturday, October the 8th, a couple of things you can still get in on here including over at the Tube Factory, the alien abduction expert and author from Michigan is coming to town to talk about such. And then uh, in the evening, they're going to show a fabulous uh, movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, that classic movie over there at the Tube Factory, does, Sharon. Does this person have some tools to identify the aliens Bill Konkoleski, he's, he's very credible, very credible um, source, and it's going to be a really interesting afternoon. You're telling me evening. if I don't see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll be uh, right. telegraphing my story from the, the uh, atmosphere. 
I love it. I love it. Also, this Saturday at Grove House down in Fountain Square from 4 p.m. to 11 p.m. That's a long event, but it's an all-ages event. It's the inaugural event of Women of Indianapolis Arts. They're calling it the Alice Through the Looking Glass Ceiling event. And it's all about an alliance of women in the arts as well as uh, young women and girls in the arts. But they're very inclusive, so if you're a guy, stop. You know, don't think you have to stop listening. You, You are very much invited to come as well. Um, seven bands, eight art booths by various artists, uh, $7 uh, at-the-door free will uh, donation to help pay for the event and fund the website, which will help promote Indianapolis women artists. And, and you can say you were there for the very beginning of this new initiative, which sounds just uh, so promising. I like it. Yeah. Also, it's the second Saturday of the month, and if you're up in the Carmel Arts and Design District this evening, you can take advantage of their gallery walk. They have uh, just about 12 different galleries right there. You can walk from space to space. The artists are there. The Hoosier Salon is there. Um, it's just a great way to, to spend a, a Saturday evening uh, getting your, your fix. If you missed First Friday in Indianapolis, you can go to Second Saturday in Carmel. And, and I have something else you can do. if uh, Whether or not you missed First Friday or you just want some more visual art, the Monument Circle Art Fair That's is going right. on this Saturday from 10 to 5. 75 artist booths, six musical acts, including our friend Kathy Morris, and food trucks. It's free to the public. Um, just show up. The Bookmobile, the IMA, and Suzuki Academy will also be there. And just so much to see and do. And a beautiful day on Monument Circle. Uh, now that it's a little cooler, the, I, I love the trend of art fairs after the height of summer. Fall into art, ha, so to speak. I love it. I, I guess. love it. Tuesday night, October 11th at the Indie Fringe, it's the Storytelling Arts. They're getting together once again for their Jabberwocky. This oh, series is always so much fun. Doors open at 5.30. The stories begin at 6. They're talking about genealogy. So, you know, a lot of people are into that with Ancestry.com. They're coming to share their stories Tuesday night at the Fringe down there on Mass Avenue. I love it. Hey, the Harrison Center for the Arts City Gallery and the Spirit in Place Festival are all teaming up for their special home-themed city supper event coming up on Sunday, October 16th. And uh, what they're doing is encouraging people to host a city supper. And you can find out a lot more about that at either spiritinplace.org or harrisoncenter.org. What they are 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 kind of old-fashioned attempts to get people to know their neighbors, to know their uh, people a few blocks away, to know their community a little bit better. And it's everything from um, family-friendly, so kids can be around, to um, conversation starters around the dinner table, like, this is the bicentennial year. Do you consider Indiana to be your forever home? What a really intriguing uh, collaboration there. Find out more at harrisoncenter.org or spiritandplace.org. And be polite and make sure you help wash the dishes and clear the table (laughs) after you have partaken with your neighbors. Good manners are always (laughs) in fashion. Hey, so the Arts Council of Indianapolis and Indiana Humanities are pairing up for... Arts and Humanities Month, which is October, and they have a series of events called Tilt. And what it is, is a pairing of two artists talking about completely different topics that theoretically have nothing to do with one another. The first one is coming up on Tuesday, October 11th. The talks are about woolen trade blankets and the birth of style writing. Those are pretty different. They're very different. (laughs) IndianaHumanities.org or ArtsCouncilOfIndianapolis.org to find out more about that. Free, open to the public at Gallery 924. And remember, you can always uh, look for more to do by checking out the news item of the week on the IndieArts.org slash guide at the Arts Council of Indianapolis Indie Arts Guide. Or you can tune in next week and join us for our calendar that we call What What Will We we do? Do? You're listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in Indianapolis and central Indiana. If your arts organization has an event or activity of which you think we should be aware, please contact us at least three weeks in advance. You can write us at The Art of the Matter, care of WFYI, 1630 North Meridian Street, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46202. Or you can email us at artofthematter at wfyi.org. You can also hear The Art of the Matter on wfyi.org.
You're listening to The Art of the Matter on WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble. If you listen to TED Talks here on WFYI Radio, you're hyper-aware of the role that design plays in modern life. The Indiana State Museum is about to host an exhibit that allows kids and adults to experiment with hands-on design, as I recently discovered in a conversation with their Associate Vice President of Exhibitions, Beth Van Wy. So this exhibit is touring, right? Yes, it's on the road from the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry and has been touring the country for a little while, and we're really excited to bring it to Indianapolis. Now, you've been in town how long? Uh, just over a year. So you this you might have inherited this project, right? Uh, this was actually one of the first projects I helped bring in as oh, a traveling cool. exhibition. Great. What appealed to you? The hands-on aspect of this exhibition is what really excites me. It's one of the few that we'll have at the museum that actually does not have artifacts. So it's really looking at many of the other sides of what exhibitions can do, of talking about uh, ideas, concepts, and exploring them through hands-on creativity. Mm -hmm. I was looking at some of the some of the fun um, projects you can do and trying to decide, well, Actually, they all sounded fun to me, and I'm not going to reveal my age, but I'll just say I'm a grown-up. I'm probably not the target audience, but what about what ages would you say this is ideal for? I think this is ideal for primarily 8 to 14, mm -hmm. but I think it's going to be just as much fun for their parents and grandparents. That, you kind of love that stuff where there's something that... Don't don't tell your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews when you bring them. But the you know you're sneaking a little education in, but you're also bonding people of different ages. Very much so. I think this really is a multi generational fun exploration that uh, will really. I think the kids might be pulling their parents away from some of these interactives. <laughs> so it uh, looks to me as though it was sort of uh, designed to in, indulge multiple senses. Tell us about some of the hands on activities. Uh, well, the t as the title says, it's Design Zone, but it really takes the role of design through three different facets of art, music, and engineering, and the role that science and math play in that, but in the fun, approachable way that you sometimes forget that learning's happening. Uh, with the art side of it, of uh, really the creative ties to how you might design a maze, how you might design a building, and then actually doing the physical making to test those out. So do you get some feedback from the exhibit? So let's say I'm going to design a maze. Um, do I, um, I design it, and then do I get some feedback in some way? Uh, yes, it's very much a give and take, sort of as you're making it, you're seeing how successful you are uh, with the maze. Part of it is as you're making it, you're trying to see how well you can survive and make, make it through that maze with marbles. Uh, as you're figuring out how to lay down beats, as the DJ piece of it is, of looking about music and design, uh, you're actually testing that and seeing if, if you're able to actually make something that people want to dance to. Fun. And then if you, if you don't, you just scrap it and start over, right? Yes. There's plenty of opportunity for trial and error and many successes. Tell me about Wacophone. <laughs> uh, the Wacophone is an interesting play on how to find different sounds and the design of the tubes that you're using the phones to whack against it. You're finding different um, different beats or different uh, tones that the music can carry. So you're creating different ways of making music. Okay, uh, which which leads you to try to figure out how how that's created, where the sound, how do the sound waves work? Correct. What uh, what do you is there a, a particular way uh, a prescribed order that you go through the different parts of this exhibition in, or or is it just whatever appeals to you most? You start with with this exhibition, it really is whatever appeals to you most. It will be laid out in a way that you can see most of the pieces all at once, so you can decide where you want to dive in and really start exploring. Uh, they'll be grouped in the art, music, and engineering areas, but even within that, there's so much overlap in how science, math, art, design, music all interact. And I think that's just a statement to how those fields work professionally and in society, that it's really showing how those all overlap and connect. So as you walk into the gallery, you can choose to dive right into building something or creating a skate park or designing your own roller coaster, and then just as easily bounce to any of the other pieces. It, it kind of feels like a TED Talk aimed at uh, school-age kids, all those different elements overlapping. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think that's a big, fun piece of it. And I think, while that's not the main 
takeaway of it. I think that's inherent in how how it's all laid out and how you're experiencing all of those pieces. What led you to your field? You came here from Philadelphia. I did. Uh, my background's actually architecture and industrial design. Really? And yes. So I studied architecture and worked as an architect for uh, longer than will admit. I'll say I'm an adult also. Uh, <laughs> and through that, actually wanted to get into exploring more how users interact with space and buildings and the areas around them. So I went to school, graduate school for industrial design and user research and really started to focus on how we use what's around us in our everyday life. And that led to getting into museums because everything that we do in museums is about how we experience what's around us, what our history is, what our future can be. Wow. I've never thought of the, the intersections there, but that makes perfect sense. And, you know, everything we see, everything we touch, the microphones we're using and headphones we're using now, um, the technology was created by scientists or engineers, but it didn't stop there. It, it The next step was interaction with the intended um, users, right? Right. And I think that's where design really is that collaboration between science and user of who's going to connect it and who's going to create the back end, but also who's designing the piece that you're interacting with, the ride that you're on, the vehicle that you're in, the bike that you might be riding, but also the roads that you have to take to get between everything. What do you hope, um, I started to say kids, but people who visit the Design Zone exhibition, what do you hope they do at the end? What do you want them to think about differently? I think one of the biggest takeaways for this exhibition is that design is everywhere and that in everything that we do from the science to the arts to the music, design is a running theme through all of that and that there's so many different ways to explore those possibilities that if you're an artist, you can work in museums and do design work. If you have an engineering approach to how you think that the role of design and science are also a part of that and that all of these interests really overlap. Beth Van Wye, Associate Vice President of Exhibitions for the Indiana State Museum. You can start creating your own roller coaster or skate park on October 22nd at the museum. Have you ever played that party game where someone says, okay, you can only listen to five songs for the rest of your life? Choose now. A Cultural Manifesto's Kyle Long posed that question to MC poet and hip-hop artist Rahima McNeil, who was recently part of Crease 2016. I'm Kyle Long. I'm here with Indianapolis MC Rahima McNeil. She has a new project out. It's titled Moco. Rahima, you have five songs picked out for us. These are five <laughs> songs that... Tell us about these songs. Are these your favorite songs, songs that influenced you? What are we going to hear? It's a mixture. Al Green, Love and Happiness. That's your first song, Al that's Green, my Love first. and Happiness. Like, yeah. That's the most potent of all. Yeah, what's that mean to you? I remember just watching Love and Basketball and how the opening intro to the movie they played Al Green and even before that my mom would play Al Green in the house while she was cleaning and cooking and stuff so that goes way way back to when I was a little kid I love the first like the footsteps that do 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 like when it first opens up I don't know what that is like what it does but like I don't know it's amazing it's magical love and happiness Someone's on the phone, three o'clock in the morning. Um, and then secondly is Drake, Legend. I feel like that song a lot of people can relate to because it, it tells like an underdog type story. And so it's inspiring for anybody to yeah. believe in themselves that they can do whatever they achieve and be something great and special. When I pull up on a to that baby, I'm too good with the words watching bad track. If I die, all I know is I'm a mother Legend is too late for my city I'm the youngest Rapping, oh my God, oh my God If I die, I'm a legend Oh my God, oh my God If I die, I'm a legend I'm a first, I'm on tour Got a girl, she front of side Used to work, used to dance Third is Blood on the Leaves by Kanye West I love to drive to that because it gets me amped up. <laughs> Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. 
in that song, he samples Strange Fruit by Nina, Nina Simone, Simone version, yes. which is a song that was written about a lynching right. that happened here in Indiana. In it Marion, happened Indiana. here? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Do you feel like s- some people thought it was, n- you know, for a long time, some people questioned whether it was appropriate to sample mm. that song because it is it's almost sacred, this song, because yeah. it has so much power to it. Yeah. W- how do you feel about his use of that sample in, in the way he recontextualized it in, in that piece? I've seen uh, like plagiarism and then I've also seen appreciation. And I feel like Kanye West appreciated the the beauty of Nina Simone's work. And I appreciate both songs, the original version and Kanye West version. So let's get on with it. We could have been somebody. Said you had to tell somebody. Let's take it back to the first party. When you tried your first mile your fourth song is a British artist, right? Little yes, Sims. Little amazing Sims. Artist. Yeah, tell us about this track. The video is amazing. If you not if you have not seen Little Sims Dead Body video, you should go see it. And I feel like it speaks to a lot of artists because going through this industry, you are tempted and you even question, should I sell my soul? Should I sell my identity and what I believe in and, and, and this and that and, and how much sacrifice should I give to this this dream? And so uh at the end, she says, never will I sell my soul, which I thought was beautiful. Uh, so that's why it's on the top five. Do you want to see a dead body? Pretty not. Real dark in the cemetery where the souls lie. Oh my, what have I become? Man, I'm so high. Quit killing my buzz. Love drunk in a maze. Like, what have you done? Where the hell are you taking me? What are we running from? Demons in the back of my closet. Don't talk to them. You want to run and be me? Can't talk to them. And it was in a nice walk, traumatized, with me in a bad headspace. Look at the heavens, Lord, I've been saved. I have I asked for forgiveness. Can I? Or will I? Negative at heart, am I? Or shall I explain what the world done to me? You wouldn't understand my been truthfully. And your last song, number five, is Azalea Banks, right? Yes. Tell us about the track you picked. To be honest, I love, like, female MCs that embrace their feminine energy and their their uh, their sexiness, and they can rip a beat. I love that. Let folks know where they can catch up with you online. You can catch up with me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Rahima underscore McNeil, R-E-H-E-M-A-M-C-N-E-I-L. Kyle Long with Rahima McNeil. Here, Kyle's A Cultural Manifesto on WFYI 90.1 FM, Wednesday nights at 9, or 90.1 HD2 The Point, Saturday afternoons at 3. Thanks for spending some time with The Art of the Matter on WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble. You can hear our program twice each week on 90.1 FM, Saturday mornings at 7 and Thursday evenings at 8. If you hear something you like and want to share, go to WFYI.org for our podcast. Tune in next week when you'll meet the new president of Heartland Film, hear from Kati Marton coming to Indy for a book tour, and listen in as Bullet Points prepares for its October 22nd show with Shonen Knife and Pravada at Radio Radio. And of course, we'll have that arts calendar we call, What'll What'll We we Do? All that and much more on The Art of the Matter here on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. You've been listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in central Indiana and Indianapolis. Today's show was edited by Melissa Davis and produced by Roxana Caldwell. The Art of the Matter, made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you.